All right, everybody, I am here today with Samantha Edis. Samantha is the CEO and founder of Park Place Payments. How are you doing today, Samantha? I'm great. How are you, James? I am doing wonderful. So glad you could take some little time to uh, join us today for the podcast. Um, I tell you what I'd love to do. You know, you've got such an interesting story. I did a little bit of digging on it. I'd love for you to share with our listeners, how did you end up in this crazy industry and what led you to start Park Place Payments? Well, I agree it's a crazy industry, <laughs> which makes every day exciting. Yes. Um, yeah, so, so you know, I, I graduated um, from business school. I, I'd taken a few years between college and business school um, to do media and then went to Harvard Business School. And when I graduated, I launched a company that was focused on personal branding um, for CEOs and experts. And along the way, I had, you know, a, a book series and a radio show. And there was one group of, of people over time that I was unable to help. And those were the women who left the workforce and wanted to return, but found that there were no opportunities. Sure. Um, and so it was very frustrating for me that I couldn't help them. And I noticed so many very well-educated, um, pro- formerly professional women starting to sell makeup and skincare and, you know, and beauty products to their friends. And I thought, this is crazy. Why aren't these women selling financial services? Right. Um, I've, you know, and I, I've had a front row seat to the payment processing industry for the last 10 years. And I just noticed that there were so few women selling credit card processing. Um, so and I thought, what if I could, you know, apply... Um, this incredible group of women who's sitting on the sidelines, what if I could train them to sell credit card processing? And and by the way, now we have a few good men too. It's not just women, right. but yeah, I saw that. majority women. Right. Sure, sure. But yeah. it is interesting that you, you know, your 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 focus was to bring women in, you know, to a to an industry that's been largely dominated by men. Absolutely. And, you know, women are great at openers. They're great at, at, um, at, 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 at opening conversations. Um, our sales force is incredibly earnest and trustworthy um, and professional in a very unique way for this industry. You know, this industry, you know, the Atlantic Monthly had an article last summer about how the industry actually does have roots in the used car sales industry. And it is really hard to think of another product where people walk around and say, you know, you say, how much is it? And they say, well, what are you willing to pay? Right? I mean, right. You, you, know, you don't get that. I, I, you don't go buy a pair of jeans and they, you say, how much are these jeans? And they say, well, what would you pay for them? Right, exactly. <laughs> but right. somehow that's like the norm in credit card processing. So we're trying to change that. That's great. So, Samantha, I wanted to start out, with, you know, we, we want to talk today about culture because um, I don't think we've ever had that specific topic on our podcast, um, frankly, because uh, I hate to say this, but a lot of people in the industry don't really seem to care about this topic of culture. Uh, it's unfortunate. And so I, when I saw your company, you know, and did some research, immediately I was struck by this is a company, this is a CEO that seems to have an understanding of culture and the impact that it can have. And so I want to dive into that a little bit today. My first question for you, really for more for the industry, I'm a big believer in culture and the importance of it, but I understand in this industry there's just a lot of independence out there and things like that, but why should people in this industry care about culture in their company? What's the bottom line? What's the impact? What are they missing out on by not putting a focus on culture in their organization? You know, I think that that any company, whatever you sell, whatever you market, culture plays a role. 
Um, it's, it's why when, you know, when I hire people, I focus on attitude more than experience. Right. Experience, of course, is important, but if you don't have the right attitude, all the experience in the world is not going to make you a success in a company. So I think that, that, that by paying attention to culture, you can really change an industry and disrupt an industry. And that's what we're aiming to do at Park Place. I mean, I, I, I will say that, that part of what I see when I go to industry conferences and, and I don't mean to sound, um, you know, in any way like I'm above something. However, I do think it's pretty easy to come into this industry and change it because it's been done the same way for so long and so few people are thinking about culture. I was in a in an industry conference last week, um, and one of the, the sessions they said to everyone, so – so how do you train your, your, they call them agents, we call them account executives, because I think that language is really important, and right. we're trying to differentiate everything we do. Um, and so by giving our people the title account executive, we're treating them in a different way than you'd be treated if you were like, I'm an agent. It just feels different than saying I'm an account sure. executive. Um, and so when we were in this session, uh, the, the trainer said, so, so how do you all train your agents? And um, everyone said, I don't really train them or I drive them around in a car. Like we were the only people in that in that workshop that had a formalized training program. And so it just seems um, like, you know, without attention to culture, you are going to do things the way they've always been done. And given how fast the world is changing, you're not going to be able to keep up. Um, the way you used to, perhaps. And so you're not going to be in a position to pivot if you don't have the right culture within your company. And culture isn't something you can create overnight. You know, we are in the middle of building our company. So right now we have 100 account executives. By the end of next year, we'll have 1,000. And, you know, how we treat our account executives today and how how we codify our own systems and programs absolutely will impact what's going to happen when we when we board new account executives next year. So, for example, one of the things we do is when, when someone becomes a Park Place account executive, we give them a forever number. So I don't know if you remember once LinkedIn did this thing where they gave out numbers so you could be like, I was member, I was LinkedIn right. member 14,530. They don't <laughs> do it anymore, but it was like super exciting for like one right. week. Everyone tried to figure out what their LinkedIn membership number was. They emailed it to you. Right. We all right, right. Them, right? It was really fun. Um, in fact, I, I looked for it recently and it doesn't exist anymore. But, no. <laughs> um, but we've done that with Park Place where, where we've given, you know, if you sign up, you're number 73 and you're number 804. And the reason we're doing that now is because at our first annual conference next year, when people walk around with their name tags, they're going to have their forever number on there. So, like, the people who are in, in the double digits will be a little bit celebrity-esque. Right, <laughs> they're the ones that have been there forever. So it's little things like that that can make a huge difference in culture. Sure. So does that does that in terms of the impact on on your people and your results? Have you have you been able to? You know, I know you're still new, but have you been able to, to quantify that at least initially in terms of how it's impacted your results? I, I don't know that we've been around long enough. We've only been around for two years. So I don't know that we've been around long enough to. to to say that for sure. Uh-huh. Um, sure. I do know that because we are pulling from outside of the industry, um, it's a little bit different in terms of our attrition and um, and the loyalty to our company than you might find somewhere else. Um, we are very obsessed here with ongoing training. 
So we have weekly um, week, weekly video one-hour training sessions where we train our account executives not just on the newest products we're selling or different rental programs or whatever it might be, but we're also training them on time management techniques and ways to sell and build your prospect list sure. and things like that. So it's, it's a little more of a holistic approach to sales right. training. And they're ongoing. What you're, so like if I'm, you know, if I'm forever uh, exec number 33, I'm, I'm yeah. going through the, I'm, I'm sitting through the same training sessions that number, you know, 567 is sitting through, right? Absolutely. You know, yeah. because one of the best things we can do, Patty, is to, is to have people teach people that are newer, right. right? Because that's like one of the best sure. ways to learn. So, so it actually works out really well in terms of mentorship where some of the sort of more seasoned AEs will say, oh, well, I've had that experience and here's how I handled it. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I'd love to do, Samantha, is you can take us back. Um, I always love because it's like it's so interesting to talk about what you're doing today. But then to me, it's interesting to talk about what you did two years ago. So when you were starting out, when you were getting, you know, account executive one, two, three, four and five, you know, um, were there things that you implemented back then at the beginning that you feel like were putting some stakes in the ground in terms of your culture and, and the, the spirit and kind of the way you wanted the company to feel? Or was it more of that kind of, you know, trial and error, a little bit of both? Like, talk to us a little bit about what you did early on. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. I mean, we definitely, I'm a big believer in failing fast. So if I make a mistake, I want to correct sure. it right away. And I don't, I don't have a lot of, um, uh, ego involved. So I don't, you know, I, I'm the first one to laugh at my errors and, and to look back on them and, and say, okay, let's just make a switch. And even if I felt fervently about something in the beginning and I change my mind now, I don't have any sort of ego wrapped up in that. So that's been helpful to us. So for example, I still remember our first training session was in person in Los Angeles. We literally spent more than a day on number crunching. I mean, people in the room, their eyes were glazed over by the end. It was just so overwhelming. We launched one of the 12 people in that room is, is still active today because I think they, we terrified them. I mean, it was just right. it was awful. Right. <laughs> so, and, and since then, you know, what we do, one of the things we do is because I'm, I'm targeting people from outside of this industry. I don't want them to have to crunch the numbers and waste their time on that because being a math whiz doesn't make you an excellent salesperson, right? Or right. an executive. So, so we've done is we brought that in house. So now we do all the number crunching on behalf of our account executives. And we also do all of our, we, everyone who sells presents with a beautiful PowerPoint presentation that is customized to the client. And that's something we produce in-house for our account executives. Sure. So most of that back-end stuff we handle now. Um, so that we can, that's how we're able to make a, a former Olympic athlete or teacher or marketing executive or doctor successful in this industry is by doing a lot of that heavy lifting for them. Um, Cause that's sort of the only scalable way to do it is to say, we don't need right. to train you in how to you know do a, a payment analysis. We can do that for you. Um, so that's one of the, the huge mistakes I made in the beginning. In terms of what we did right, I think from the very beginning, you know, I kept hearing, well, this is how it's always been done. And I said, well, that's a 
great reason to switch it, you know, to change it (laughs) and not do it that way. And so whenever I hear that, I kind of cringe because you get a lot of that in the payment processing industry. Well, so it's always been done. And um, I think that can be the downfall of an industry or company. So, so we definitely don't adhere to that. So, you know, from the very beginning, our website has looked completely different than other payment processing websites. Right. Our materials look different. Our business cards are different. Everything we do is is very brand focused because I used to run a branding firm. So I'm very kind of obsessed with making sure that we're brand consistent. And on top of that, that every person in the office feels that they're very in touch with what our brand is and how we can communicate that to everyone. And so, for example, and this is just a really small thing, but um, when we train our account executives, one of the things we do is we say we have these weekly video calls and and pay attention to the background when you're on a video call, right? If you've like dirty dishes in the sink and a baby crying, it's very hard to for people to respect you as a professional. So right, right. you want to make sure that, you know, people aren't seeing on a video call with like a hoarder, <laughs> a hoarder's amount of boxes <laughs> in the background, right? right? So, right. so things like that, that we try to instill in people, we, we give them um, tips on social media and we get them involved in our social media. We have a monthly newsletter for account executives. We have a daily tip of the day. I mean, we're, we're changing kind of the way this is partially by creating a very strong community within our company. Sure. So this is really the perfect segue because my my next question was actually going to be about communication. And you just brought up a couple of things with the monthly newsletter and things like that. So I think really one of the big challenges in this industry that I'm sure you've seen at the conferences is that there's this kind of, um, you know, mixture of, you know, independence where we have all these independent agents, but that independence can often be used as an excuse to say, well, we don't need to have a good culture or any kind of communication in our company because we're dealing with all these independent contractors, or even if they're employees, it's like they're working from home. So it doesn't kind of have that feeling of structure, but that excuse often in my experience in consulting seems to cost ISOs an enormous amount of money and, and attrition because they don't communicate and so then they lose touch. So talk a little bit about communication. How important is it to your organization? How are you communicating effectively with your account executives to kind of keep them engaged, even though they do have that certain kind of level of you know independence out there? Yeah, and I always say, by the way, that like along with independence comes loneliness. Like it can be really yeah, lonely absolutely. to be, uh, you know, an agent in this industry. And so we're trying to remove that aspect of it by being in touch. So our, our home office is in touch with our account executives on a daily basis. If, you know, if one of our account executives wants to be active and wants handholding, we love that relationship. So we are all over that. We'll call them every day, every morning to check in. Um, we make ourselves available if there is a difficult um, presentation that they have and they're nervous about it or they're presenting a new product, one of our executives will be on the phone with them. We're available in case they want to call us with questions. Um, we, we're, we're very um, much about trying to take away the, the, the loneliness of this job and to make people feel like they're part of a team because, A, once you invest in training someone and they leave you, um, you lose more than just that person, right? It affects sure. everyone in the culture. So the more we can keep our 
you know, employee attrition as low as our merchant attrition, which is record low um, because of the way we service our accounts, um, it's really important to us to do the same thing with our account executives. So that's why we launched this um, monthly newsletter. We have, like, really fun contests that we just launched, a um, quarterly uh, win a vacation contest. So there's all sorts of um, things we do to build our community and to make people feel like they get to know each other. So in every monthly newsletter, we interview a different account executive and profile them with their photo and, um, you know, eight interview questions so that people feel like they get to know who their team is. That's why we're launching our annual conference next year, because we really are committed to this idea that this is not just a job. It's really you're, you're, you're joining a company and you're part of a community. And I think that's incredibly important, especially in our model where we're taking people from outside of the industry and making them feel like they're part of something and making them excited about payments, which is, you know, typically not the sexiest industry. <laughs> right. Right, and, right. You know, if you could if you could talk a little bit more about you just kind of touched on customers. Right. So you're talking about really low attrition. Obviously, we haven't even talked about that and the impact that culture has on kind of the other side of this. So we have the account executive, but, you know, the culture that they're given and kind of their spirit, their attitude, then, of course, is going to filter over into the merchant. So can you talk a little bit about that? How does the culture impact as far as customer service and and impacting those retention numbers? One of the, the things we learned early on is that, you know, most businesses in this industry or, I mean, I can't really think of anyone that really sticks to the rate card. So we're committed to the idea that you're not going to have to go have someone else lower your rate to then come back to us and say, can you lower my rate to what this person just offered me? Like, that is not the way we do business here. So at Park Place, we offer the best rate the first time. Um, we, we always say, like, why would you want to do business with someone who could have offered you a lower rate but only did when you came to them right. with someone else's right. lower rate? <laughs> sure. So, um, and you can't think of any other industry like that. But I also am very aware of the fact that we don't want to just sell on price because as soon as you just sell on price, then there's no stickiness to your product. And sure. so what we've done is we have exceptional customer service. Um, we ha- we reach out to all of our customers ahead of schedule to make sure that they get PCI compliant ahead of time. We handhold them through that process so that they don't have to think about it or worry about it um, and that we never end up charging um, fees for non-compliance. Like we want to make sure that we're a step ahead of everything so we don't let our merchants get out of date in terms of their technology. Um, we keep them up to date on industry trends. We're very committed to the idea that the way that a lot of companies, for example, that are smaller have a, you know, a, a lawyer outside of their, their company that almost functions as an in-house counsel, but they can't afford an in-house counsel. Right. We like to be that for payments. So we want, you know, we do, I, I don't know other companies that do this, but we do um, what we call wellness checkups where we constantly, monthly, will check in with all of our accounts make sure they're happy, see if there's anything we can do for them. Um, typically, people don't hear from their processor unless there's a problem. And right, so right. we are proactively um, reaching out to them and making them realize that they have a team behind them. You know, it's not online customer service. It's, it's someone picking up the phone who knows your name and knows who you are and you're important to them. And so we we treat our account executives that way, and we also treat our, our businesses that way. One of the things that's really helped our, our culture, and, and I don't think I even – I'd love to take credit for it, but I think it just kind of organically happened, um, is that 
when we do an assessment, you know, a checkup where we compare the technology service um, and pricing to what they have previously had, a prospective client, if we realize that they say that they love their their relationship with their process, their current processor, we see that they have a good rate already and they have up-to-date technology, about 10% of the time we go back to merchants and say, you know what, we've looked at it and you actually have a great setup. We can't in good conscience suggest that you switch to us. You already have, you should stick with what you have. Right. And right. we do that and our account executives are the ones that deliver that message. Yeah. And I can't even tell you how many times I've received emails from account executives saying, I am so proud to be part of Park Place and a company that is this honest. Right. Because the response they get from the field is, my gosh, I've never heard of anyone in your industry doing this, and I can't thank you enough. And even though we didn't work with you, I'll recommend you to 10 friends. Yeah. So right. I think, you know, infusing your culture with that and making the account executives know that that's how we do business, it really comes across, and then they use that the next time they talk to other businesses. Yeah, yeah. well, and then and then all of a sudden they have that, that actual legitimate belief that, when they go to a merchant, they can say to them, look, if I can't, you know, if you have a really good deal, I will tell you. I just had Susan last week at XYZ Company that I couldn't help, right? And, and you know, I went and told her, hey, you have a great deal. And that's, you know, if that's the case with you, it'll be the same thing. So, yeah, that's, that's really powerful. You know what's funny when you were talking about it? I couldn't help but think, you know, isn't it interesting, like, in our industry, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like the bar is set so low in this area of, like, <laughs> you, you don't you don't have to do that much like like these these large ISOs I work with, like they lose literally millions of dollars a year in portfolio value from attrition that a five minute call once a month or even maybe once a quarter would probably keep that from happening. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like these these things that you need to do in any other industry, it would be like. Well, yeah, you need to talk to your valuable customers once every like 30 to 60 days. Like that's not like a crazy idea, right? Well, that's exactly right. And that's what I was saying in the beginning of our conversation, which is that it's crazy how low the expectation is. And it's been a very easy industry to come in and say we're doing things differently because anytime you do basic business practices, it's something different. (laughs) Right, right. So um, it's it's a very unusual industry. I happen to think it's really funny and exciting, and I laugh every day about the fact that, like, this is an industry that's super old school, and right. a lot of people are very tied to the idea of keeping it the way it's always been. Right, um, right. So it's, it's been sort of fun to come in with new eyes and, yeah. and, and try to disrupt it. I will say, you know, I've hired a couple of very seasoned payment executives, and even they are sometimes shocked by how we're doing things here because they're so used to how it's always been done that it is a culture shift for them to say, okay, what do you mean we don't negotiate? Or what do you mean you're doing all this work for your account executives? It's, it's right. just a mind shift. Um, or, or, it's like, to to. or it's like, what do you mean I'm not going to lose a fourth of my accounts every year? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's like, oh, wow. You mean like I start the year off, I don't have to sell a fourth of my book to stay even. Like, that's cool. So anyway, exactly. so all right, let's let's switch, let's switch gears just a little bit because I, I really want to get to this. Um, so Park Place Payments, you know, I know you all have really put an emphasis on training and promoting women in the payments industry, which has really been lacking. Um, can you talk about this a little bit? Why did you decide to implement this strategy? Um, you mentioned a little bit early on, but, you know, how does this really set you apart of the industry? And, and why do you feel like it's something where we really just kind of lag behind in that area? 
And if I can just interject real quickly, I mean, also in that in that respect, sort of, what do you look for? You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure you know a lot of people in this industry. It's like if you have a pulse, <laughs> okay, right, right, I'll right. hire you, right? I mean, so I mean, I know you're not just going out there and just hiring women who want to return to the workforce. There has to be some sort of skill set that you're looking for. You know, it's it's very interesting because I, I'm trying to assess. I'm still. I have not figured out exactly the recipe for the most successful account executive. Yeah. I can tell you what certain characteristics have been of our most successful people, but my numbers are not great enough yet right. for me to sure. say, okay, okay, I know what an account executive who's super successful in this industry. And honestly, sometimes I really am surprised by who becomes really successful. <laughs> it's not necessarily right. the horse that I would have bet on. So I think, you know, for, what I have noticed in terms of a pattern and of success are that people who are part of the fabric of their community, right? So, mm, so they're yeah. already, you know, part of their communities and they know their hair salon owner and they know their dentist and their chiropractor and their toy store or whatever it is. They already right. have those relationships built in and they're comfortable having conversations with a wide variety of people. So there's a certain confidence that is required when you're in sales of any product. Right. Um, it's a willingness to learn something new because no one has sold payments before. Right. And then the third thing, which I think is critically important, is a hunger or an ambition. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a hunger that, like, I need to, to you know, keep the lights on. I'm desperate right. to feed right. my family. It could also be, like, I just want money of my own and I'm sick of depending on someone and I, I want to feel great about my role as a breadwinner. Or I, I'm a, I've always been an ambitious person and I just want to really do well and it's going to make me feel good inside. So what's interesting is that, you know, I think it's easy to think, okay, the person that's the hungriest in terms of the neediest is going to be the best and it's often the person that's most ambitious and has this inner drive and wants to do something entrepreneurial because at the end of the day when you're building your book of business and you're building your number of accounts like this is a very entrepreneurial position in fact what's been interesting is that when a lot of seasoned um, payment processing agents hear about our business in the last couple of months, we've had some of them approach us and say, I know you don't do upfront bonuses the way some of these other guys do who, you know, who are not, who don't at all, you know, handhold us through anything. And they just say, good luck out there. Um, but your model actually would make me very successful because you're doing all the service. You're doing all of the launch. You're doing all the applications, the presentation. So all I have to do is keep selling and I'm going to kill it if I do that. So we've now had a lot of incoming people, interest from people who see the model and they say, wow, this is something different. And actually, you know, given how ambitious I am, I could use this, use all of the resources we're putting towards this to be enormously successful in building a giant portfolio with you. Um, so it's been really fun for us to watch someone go from, you know, having no accounts to 10 months later having this, you know, four-figure residual income that will one day grow to five-figure residual income and then six. So, I mean, that's been very exciting for us. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the other interesting things that you brought up is, you know, I find that salespeople, every salesperson kind of has a, uh, not every salesperson, most salespeople have a ceiling on their success in their own mind. Um, and it's interesting to kind of discover that, you know, like I, I like to ask salespeople, you know, somebody that's brand new and I'll say, you know, imagine that, you know, you woke up tomorrow and you had 10,000 a month in residual 
how would that make you feel? What would you want to do the next month? And, or maybe 5,000 and kind of, it's funny to hear them talk about it. You know, some salespeople, it's like, oh, if I had $10,000 a month, I mean, I would never work again, you know? And, and that's fine. I mean, that's their, that is their level of success. That's their ceiling. For some people, it's 3,000 or 5,000. But what's amazing is when you find those people that, they just really want, they don't have even really a ceiling. It's like, I just want to improve and I want to have that self-improvement and they have that drive to get to the next level and their ceiling is just really, really high. It seems like those are the ones you can keep engaged a lot longer, you know? Absolutely. And I love what you said that most people have a ceiling on their success. I'm going to quote you on that. I think that's a great, a great, um, a great way to think about it. Um, you know, why not keep pushing yourself? And, right. And I do think that the people who are most successful in this business are the ones that say, okay, I got to 5,000. Now I want to get to seven and now I want to get to 10 and now I want right. to get to 20 and I'm just going to keep going. Right. right? And so, right. I mean, that's one of the exciting things about this industry. I'm often, I mean, as an ambitious person, I was a college athlete. Like I'm kind of surprised at how few people have that attitude of like, I know yeah. if I was an account executive, I would just be out there going to stores and businesses every day because why not? What's the worst thing that happens if someone says no, right. the best thing that happens is right. you add $50 to your account every month. So it's like, you know, I just don't understand the mentality of not doing that and trying to be patient. Right, right, <laughs> but it, right. But it's hard for me to sometimes understand. It's like, we're doing all the work for you. We're doing all the presentations. We're doing right. all the launches. Like, we're just doing go all work. The, yeah, right? just go work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's actually funny. Uh, one of my friends in the industry uh, is a president of a large company, and he always says that a lot of his agents are broke at a higher level. You know, he says, you know, when he yeah. found them, they had no money. Now they make, you know, they, they got to 8000 a month. That was the ceiling on their success. They got a, a bigger house with a bigger payment, more taxes, a, be, a bigger, a better car or whatever. And now they're broke again, but they hit the level they wanted to be at. They're just as miserable as they were before, but now they make 8000 a month. You know, it's like you've got to have that drive to go to the next level. We, our happiness is tied a lot to our improvement. I feel like not just our, our level of success that we hit, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've spent the last 10 years coaching, um, women on work-life balance from, you know, CEOs to, right. to administrative assistants at every level. And it, it's true. I mean, the people that are most fulfilled are the ones that feel productive in our society and that's productive at home and at work. Right. Um, right. And I've never met someone that feels completely satisfied with their life that isn't working towards some goal, right? We all feel better when we have goals and we achieve them. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that that piece of the puzzle is true. And the other part of what you said, it's like, you know, you have a small pocketbook and it doesn't fit everything and then you get a bigger pocketbook and then it still doesn't fit everything. And you always just fill your pocketbook no matter what size it is. I think it's the same with our lifestyles, right? It's like we right. achieve a certain level of success and then we buy the bigger house and then we have even more to work towards. And so right. um, it's just it's kind of the, the, the way we all are conditioned in many yeah, ways. Yeah, I think so. Well, the interesting thing is I think Patty and I could probably talk to you for another couple hours about all this because it's so well, interesting, right? So, yeah. So, but let's <laughs> let, let me ask you my last question. So, obviously, we have a lot of listeners that are going to be really interested in what you're talking about. They want to know more about you. They want to know more about Park Place Payments. Where would you send them? They can go to our website, which is Park Place payments.com and if they are interested in joining us as an account executive or they have friends or sisters or um or brothers or whoever it is that would like to join us we would love to hear from them awesome hey thank you so much for your time today really a pleasure uh, just enjoyed it i know our listeners got a lot of good information today
This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. You know, Americans are big fans of prepaid cards, uh, particularly prepaid gift cards, and small businesses are positioned well to um, be the big beneficiaries of this trend. Sure. Uh, data just released by Mercator Advisory Group reveals how all types of prepaid cards experienced growth of at least 100% between 2013 and 2018. Wow, really? So that's about a compound annual of close to 20, right? Yeah, 2025. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot. Wow. The most significant growth was registered with prepaid transit cards. Not really surprising there. What does that mean? You know, like the subway cards. Oh, okay, sure. Go on subways. Yeah, okay, not sure. Not to eat at a subway. Uh, <laughs> that actually does kind of surprise me a little bit. What, did they just not, I, I'm not living in a big city. Did yeah. they not have them before? Why is there so much growth? A lot of cities didn't have them. A lot of oh, cities okay. had tokens and things oh, like that. Oh, I see. So now they've digitized now this they've process. Now they've digitized okay, the process. Okay, I got it. All right. I'm like, I, lived, I used to live in Washington. That was one of the first places to digitize it. But now- Got it. Everybody has got it. Okay. Everybody's got it. Prepaid phone cards, which that surprised me. I didn't huh. think people were using, but I guess for international calling- no, you know, I think, too, I think it's a lot of the underbanked and yeah. things like that. I sure. mean, you know. They, they don't have the, the phone plans, right? Yeah. Sure. And then um, general purpose reloadable prepaid cards, you know, like your Visa branded. or Got it. Know. Okay. They, they grew by about 100% in okay. that five-year period. Right. So uh, younger consumers are, are especially keen on prepaid cards. With seven out of ten surveyed consumers under the age of 45 buying prepaid cards compared to just five out of ten Consumers over the age of 45. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, another survey published by Fiserv, who we now remember as the parent of First Data, right, um, points to significant benefits for small businesses that offer have gift card programs. Uh, the survey results indicate that small business owners can boost revenue, foster customer loyalty, and strengthen their brands by investing in these programs. Uh, the survey take takers included nearly 1,100 consumers and s over 600 individuals who own or manage small businesses. Now, among the consumers surveyed, 74% said they regularly purchased gift cards from small businesses. I thought that was... Yeah. Um, the three businesses types that they most uh, prefer to purchase or receive gift cards from, casual dining, sure, coffee shops, and specialty shops like hair and nail salons. Mm-hmm. One of the reported survey results, though, that I found most compelling was that 90% of consumers who receive gift cards for a small business they've never shopped at would shop at those businesses using the gift card and then return again. Wow. That's mm. a compelling – think about that. That's so 90% of people that go into your store with a gift card who have never been there before right. will come back. Yeah, wow, that's really uh, that's a shocking number. You know, it's funny. It actually reminds me of one of my clients. I uh, had a um, it was a I did a lot of pizza shop stuff. Right. One of my clients had multiple location pizza shops, mm -hmm. and uh, his pizza shops. A lot of them were near um, campuses for like colleges or sure. schools, that kind of thing. And one thing he would do is he always worked out a deal with the local high school where they would do a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And he what he would do, and this is pretty crazy, because I was the one that had to get him the gift cards. Right. I remember one year he got 3,000 gift cards from me. Wow. 
These were $5 gift cards. Uh-huh. Okay? So you're talking about so a, that's 15, 15 grand, right? Yeah. What he would do is he gifted that to the school. Wow. And he said, sell them for whatever you want. Give them away if you want. Do whatever you want with them. But here's $3,005 gift cards. Well, what would happen, of course, is that... Can't buy a whole lot for $5 at a pizza of shop. Of course. And these gift cards flooded the community because they were, like, free. And so the school would give them out different things. And they were branded with the school logo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, and if memory serves, I think he even had some kind of a, a thing where even more than that, he actually donated, I think, to the school again when people actually used the card or something like, something like that. But just the idea was he was getting all these low-value gift cards out in the marketplace. Right. And sure enough, 90% of the people that, you know, get these cards come in. So everybody went to his pizza shop, and he had a huge, you know, think so for fifteen thousand dollars, he bought like the best marketing campaign ever. Oh yeah, and think about just the marketing of having those cards in the market, like you know, right. Joe's Pizza. Even if they're, they're not just out using there. it, it's just right. out there. That's all right. free advertising, and, right? and it's linked up with the school, which is always a good way to get your reputation out there. Oh, of course. Um, here's another noteworthy result: gift cards don't have to carry a lot of value to be used. Yeah, nearly four out of five consumers said that they'd visit the night. I mean, your five dollar example was something, right? But nearly four out of five consumers said they'd visit a store to redeem a gift card valued at just 88 cents. <laughs> Can you yeah. imagine? I mean, yeah. but I, th- I think about it. It's like, yeah, sure, I got 88 cents. Right. I'll go in. Well, and I think, I think the idea there, too, is more like you've probably already been there. Right. If, you're, if your gift card, you know what I mean? Like you got a $25 gift card, you spent 24 Right. So you know you still have a dollar left. And it's funny too, I know one of the big mistakes businesses make, like if you're listening and you talk to business owners about this kind of stuff, make sure, please tell them, do not ever convert the gift card to cash. Never. Never. A lot of these business owners, they'll be like, well, if they get below a $2 balance, they're not going to use that anyway. I'll just no. give it back to them. No, 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 no. 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 Nope. Give them the card back and say, hey, you've got a dollar eighty. Make sure you come back in and use it. I think and they'll come back in and spend 30 bucks. And I think I've told you this before. I, I get the uh, Baskin-Robbins gift cards all the time. Right, I love right, to go to right. Baskin-Robbins. And I've been known to go in there and hand them three of my gift cards because they all sure, have a dollar or something on them. Sure. Right? And there's your free ice cream. And there's my free ice cream. Yeah. I'm not, you know, they know I come back right, there three right. or four times a week. So sure. Um, here's um, another interesting thing. More than half of the consumers... Um, surveyed join frequent shopper programs at small businesses and they say gift cards are their preferred way to be rewarded huh. for loyalty wow that's really neat so you have a loyalty program and then gift cards built on top of that right that's really so, cool I like hey that. you know and i was thinking about that i i don't shop at kohl's myself but i know a lot sure. of people who do and yeah. they all talk about those kohl's dollars kohl's cash kohl's cash yeah my right? wife yes yeah my, my all about the kohl's cash i have cousins and nieces and nephews that sure. always talk about that sure. and i and i always kind of laugh it's like well you got to spend money to get that money but right they're like oh man i have it's such know, a big deal fifty dollars worth of kohl's yeah kohl's and, the, cash. and the thing about kohl's cash that's interesting is that it's dating and so like you have to go back in like i went there i honestly i despise shopping anyway i'm not a shopper shopper. malls give me a headache (laughs) right but every once in a while you know christina drags me to a shopping experience and so um and then it's funny like when we go i mentioned a previous episode a while back of like we had gone out and then just saw couches that we wanted like that's the way i shop is like if i see something that i want or or anyone near me wants then i just buy it really quickly and like i just want to go yeah just buy it and let's go well, anyway, so we did that at Kohl's. We went in there and, you know, and we're walking around and Christina's like, oh, that shirt's pretty. And I'm like, put it in the cart. 
know? Right, right. Well, maybe I should try it on. Just put it in the cart. If it doesn't fit, you can bring it back. Let's go. Right, right. So I'm going around, I'm getting all this stuff, and then we get back, and um, we ended up getting like $100 in Kohl's cash. And then, you know, Christina's really excited. I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, we got to come back. back <laughs> <laughs> now, Christina did not torment me with that. Of course, she went back without me. But but the thing that was interesting about it is I'd never really seen it before either. Right. But we got it. And it said $100 in Kohl's cash. And then it said must redeem by whatever. And it was like three weeks away. Okay. I so, mean, it wasn't like a long time. Yeah, yeah. So and they so, get I mean, a good turnover Oh, and that. you know, Christina was thinking about that $100 that she had to go spend oh, yeah. every day until she spent it. I so had, it really yeah. gives that sense of urgency. It's funny you say I had an, had an uncle who um, had a, you know, he's elderly and he right. had, had a girlfriend, you know, okay. a, a companion. Right. Right. And he wanted to buy her an, an engagement ring or a friendship ring or, you know, whatever. Whatever. Right. Whatever they call it. Right. And he kept calling. My cousin was like, my father is driving me crazy. He's calling me every day telling me his Kohl's cash is going to run out. Right. He needs to go get that ring now. Right, and right, right. it was just right. so cute because, yep. you know. Yep. Good, mar- good marketing needed, at work. Right. Not that he needed to have the, you know, extra money well, off. Yeah, but it's like it's, hey, I'm, this is my, my money. I'm going to mo- use I it wanna, wisely. I want to use yeah, it. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, um, so. Here's a, a couple other things about um, the p- small business owner's perspective that came out of the first data, okay. first data, data. Um, you know, ask why they wanted a gift card program. One in three small business owners said that they were looking for simplicity. Very common, okay. I would think, you know. Um, the top ways that gift card programs can help boost business, uh, the top uh, six vote getters were it needs to integrate with our POS systems. Sure. You know, that's a pretty solid one. Mm-hmm. It needs to build loyalty. Right. It needs to increase sales. Sure. Uh, it needs to encourage spending beyond, beyond the card value. Right. Um, it needs to attract new customers. Sure. And it needs to advertise my business, which I thought was interesting. I thought the advertising business might be a little bit higher up. But well, I think that's a, just a mis. I think it is higher up. I think it's a misunderstanding that the business owners don't understand what the value they're getting from the gift cards because right. they and, haven't been educated. And I think I told you this story not long ago of a little country store near where I live, and she has a gift card program. Sure. Right. And and she's like, yeah, you know, they cost me like, you know, cost me like a few bucks a piece. Right. To have these printed up. Right. And you know, when somebody comes along and they're doing a fundraiser, I give them a couple of the right. gift cards. She goes, but the best thing is, is that it's free advertising. Right. I mean, to her, that was the number one reason for her. Sure. Because it had her store's name, and that's all it had on it, right? Yep. And And, and really, I think that's another really good point. I think that a lot of businesses are trying to look for charitable contributions. Oh, yeah. And things like that. I mean, to me, the gift card is just just the best thing to get out there in the marketplace. Because your advertising is not – it's really no skin off your back. No. You no, know? I mean, you know, if somebody comes in to use it, then cost you whatever the revenue is. But but, but that's a person. Chances that are, spend yeah, money. and they're going to come back. Chances right. are they're going to come back. And and chances are person. they're going to spend more than what the card. Was exactly, worth, so. exactly. I think one of the things too you mentioned about integration with the POS system, and I think there may be even be like agents listening that don't really understand this. I mean, the gift cards are even if you're using like a you know Verifone terminal or something, mm-hmm. you can download like a usually it's like a Group Five download, right? right. Um, and so the idea is, you know, one thing I I think a lot of agents may not even really understand and hopefully they'll they'll get it here is that you know you have software on that terminal that's allowing you to accept credit cards right right Right. and so that's running over the visa network and all that Mm -hmm. all this is this gift card thing 
in a lot of cases, it's literally an internal program. It doesn't even call out over any kind of a network. Some some do, and they manage the database somewhere else. But it's the same thing on a just tiny, tiny scale right. where it's a network of managing balances and all that. But you can put that on that exact same. It's not like you need a separate terminal to run the gift cards. Right. And you can also, as, as I understand it, put the you know the value and, and the issuance right. right there. Yeah, like when you when you do the gift card, you swipe it on the terminal, you put the amount in, you're, you're loading right. it, adding the amount. Then when somebody uses it, you put the amount they used. So it's all running through that terminal is how it should be. Right. You know, as opposed to in the old days when they had gift certificates and right. everything you was in paper, book. and you yes. had to have a book. And, Super annoying, right? And, and and it's not surprising, of course, that this survey came from First Data, and they think integration with POS is yeah, big, what a shocker, know, right? What a shocker, right? <laughs> I think they even said something like, you know, in the you know the point, <laughs> you know? Uh, right? Of course, right, right. But one of the things that wasn't raised in this survey that I thought was really, in, you know, wasn't yeah, maybe it wasn't an oversight, maybe, but to me. What I think one of the best thing, one of the biggest selling points of a gift card program is cash access. Okay, when you sell that card, you're getting cash in your draw. Well, of course. Oh, right? yeah, cash flows. Cash yeah, flow, huge. You know, huge. I mean, to me, right. that would be my, if I were running a business, right, right. that would be my top. Right. It's nice to get that. It's nice to get that cash up front. And, and I think another point you made that I hadn't thought of before earlier was, um, this idea that you, when you get that, when you pay for a gift card and during the holiday season, everything's on sale, but you give it to people at Christmas. When they go back to buy everything in January, February, nothing's on sale anymore. Right. So you're getting actually a lot more bang for your buck because you don't have to give those discounts on the money that's being spent. You're getting the money now. Right. But then they're spending it later when things they're aren't spending, on sale. And, yeah. And they're spending it later. And again, on they're probably price. spending more. Yeah. Right. So, so I think, you know, the bottom line for all this is just, you know, gift cards, are a booming market opportunity for businesses large and small and for the ISOs and agents um, selling these programs. Yeah, I think it's definitely time. Oh, this time of year is always the time to brush up on your gift card programs, loyalty stuff, make sure you know what you're doing. If you're, not, if you're, not, if you're not doing it or you're not familiar with what you're doing, yeah, become familiar. Awesome. Great stuff, Patty. Thanks. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So, Patty, I've really enjoyed the last few weeks talking about managing a merchant sales team. Uh, we touched on kind of these three keys that are you know essential to getting a sales team up and running in this industry, and that is recruiting the right people. Uh, we talked about mm -hmm. that the first week. Mm -hmm. Second week was training. You got to have the right training program in place to give them those tools to succeed. Right. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite one, which is activate. Number one on my list, big, big, big thing, is that. When you're trying to activate a sales rep, the first thing you have to do is focus on getting them to take action initially. Mm -hmm. When I say that, that sounds really obvious. And so you might be listening going, well, duh, of course, James, I want them to take action. Yeah, but you only want them to take action. Right. That means there are no sales goals. 
Mm-hmm. That's not action. That's results. Right. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. There is no collect this number of statements. That's a result. Right. Now, certainly those results are going to be an effect of them taking action. But those first two or three weeks, it is all about getting them to take action. Right. Now, there's several ways to do this again, because you have W2 and you have 1099. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W2, in my mind, is a very, very simple. And that is this is the action that you have to take to keep your job. Yes. Right? Right. Because, you know, whether that's walk into 20 businesses a day, whether that's make 50 cold calls a day to set appointments for yourself, whether that's whatever. how many merchants, whatever. Well, and again, even that, I wouldn't go to the sign the merchants because, again, they may not be able to make the sale. It has to be an effort that's 100% within their control. Okay. Right? Right. So it's like, okay, cool. So I know that to keep my job, I have to walk into 20 businesses a day. Okay. Maybe I sell five people. Maybe I don't sell anybody. That's Mm -hmm. irrelevant in the first three weeks. Right. Okay? I just need to take action. Because here's the thing. If you do part one and two correctly. Part three will just fall in place, right? Well, part three is going to produce results if they take action. Right. If you have the right salesperson who has been trained and they talk to a lot of prospects. They're going to make. They're going to make sales. Mm -hmm. There is no, it's like two plus two equals four. Like you're going to get those sales in. So if what's happening is though a lot of times is that, you know, I, I talk to ISOs all the time that give that idea lip service. Right. Yeah, we kind of agree with you philosophically on that, James. But then I go and talk to their agent, and I'm like, what do you have to do to keep your job the first three weeks? Well, Uh they said I need to make at least one sale a week. Well, no, no, no. (laughs) That's not doing it right, right? Because this is what's so funny about it. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a a lot. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying is that's that's, that's a result. And the problem is that sales agent, one of two things is going to happen with that sales agent the first three weeks. Mm -hmm. Either they're not going to make any sales... Right. And they're going to be demoralized and they feel like they're about to be fired. Right. And the frustrating thing is that actually these same ISOs really don't follow through and actually fire these people anyway. It's not like they act, they yeah. don't really fire them. They just are trying to get them all stressed about it, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing that will happen, which is just as bad in my opinion, is you get a really, really good rep. They make one seal their first week on Monday. Right. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm done. done. Yeah. Like right. this job is really, really easy. No, 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 no. You already have a good rep. You have already trained this rep. All you need them to do is take action. Mm -hmm. You don't need to worry about the results at the beginning. Just get them to take action. And then if you do that, the sales are going to follow. Right. So you say you walk into 20 businesses a day. What if I make a sale in the first five minutes? Walk into the other 19. 19. Like you just walk into 20 businesses a day. The number of sales is irrelevant. Now, does that mean you don't compensate based on the number of sales? Of course not. You're still paying commission. You're still like, hey, you made a sale. High five. Congratulations. That's great. Right, right. But you want to be very careful with the culture and the sales calls here because what you'll be tempted to do, like a lot of you do like a group sales call, maybe every morning or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know? So you've got 20 reps on the phone and you've, again, you, if you don't buy into this concept a thousand percent, it doesn't work. When you get on that call, the first question is not how, who made a sale yesterday? No, 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 no. The first three weeks, that group is managed separately. And the question is, how many of you on this call walked into 20 businesses yesterday or made cold calls or, you know, you get the idea, right. whatever this prospecting habit is that you're acquiring. So the question is simply, how many of you did X? Right. Not how many sales. That comes towards the end. Mm-hmm. And say, now, you know, again, I would even say something like this at the end of the call. You're like, now look, you know, we've talked through, you know, your pitch and all these kind of things. And problems that they've 
hitches yeah. and so forth, right? Yeah. Right. And you say, now, after all that, now, I definitely do want to find out so I can congratulate anybody on here who has found your first sale. Now, before I get to this, let me say, if you're not one of these people, if you haven't made this first sale, it's okay. that's fine. As long as you're doing the prospecting, that means the numbers are going to play out. It's statistics. Right. Some people, it's going to play out a little sooner than others. Right. But as long as you're doing the work, it's going to pay off. But with that said, I'd love to congratulate how many of you got a sale. So we do that towards the end of the call, and it's kind of like a congratulations, like, good, you did that, but it's not the requirement. Mm -hmm. The requirement is taking the action. Right. So once you do that, you do that for two, three weeks. Then you start to move into, there's also requirements for production. Sure. Right? Minimum. And here's the key when you get to that point. And I'm going to have to, this is funny, I could talk about this one for like an hour. But here's the key at this point. Set the minimum expectations that are actually your minimum expectations. Uh-huh. A, it's a standard, okay? A standard is what we accept in behavior. Okay. So that means if they don't hit the standard, you don't accept that, and that means they're terminated. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. It is just as important for a sales professional to know what it means to do a good job. It's just as important for them to know what it what they have to do to be fired. Yeah, sure. You have, this is what most, what most sales managers, they have a series of frustrating, awkward conversations with their underperformers mm -hmm. daily. Yeah, I bet. That's ridiculous. You don't need to do that. When they come in, you let them know. When they get to the end of that three weeks, you're like, okay, you did your 20 a day. You're doing great. Let's go over your minimum expectations. We're only going to go over this once. It's very simple. It's in writing. Uh -huh. I, we're never going to talk about it again. If you don't meet these minimum expectations, you don't even need to ask me if you should come in because you're going to be fired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. If you do better than these minimum expectations, I am not going to fire you. And your expectations, let me just, so I, you yeah. know, is that based on how many sales are closed? Now it's sales, yes. Now it's sales, right? Okay. But again, it's the minimum. So mm -hmm. we might say if you get, if you have to get one sale a week maybe for the first four weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what happens is if you don't have one the first week, you get a write-up. If you don't have one the second week, you get a second write-up. If you don't have one the third week, you're fired. You're out. Yeah. And then there's no difficult conversations. And you let them know and say, look, this is not my rule. This is our company policy. Right. Like this is what we do. Now- Obviously, 1099, we have to handle that very, very differently. But you know what? Do you realize you can still have performance expectations on a 1099? Sure. If somebody comes out to put a roof on my house and they tell me it's done and I go out there and half the shingles aren't up, yeah, I can uh, be upset. Yeah. I can fire them. Right. Like, you know, I can get another you're 1099. Not, you're, you're like, not, yeah, I'm not going to pay you. Exactly. Right. So you can do that with a 1099. You can say, to be a 1099 contractor with us... You don't, we're not telling you when to come to work, when to stop working. We're not telling you what office to go to. We're not doing any of the employee stuff. But I will tell you that to be one of our 1099 contractors, we have a minimum performance expectation to keep an active relationship with us. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. have to do this. So there's ways to get that. But you've got to go with those minimums where you actually stick to them. Yeah. Now, sure. what happens if you do that and then somebody makes no sales, you let them go as a 1099. Three months later, they come back and say, hey, I've got a deal I want to put with you. Well, that's why you have a referral program. Sure. Right? Right. A little bit of a lower split. There's no expectations. You're not proactively following up with them. Mm -hmm. But you need to differentiate between the team that you're following up with and you're investing in heavily mm -hmm. and the team that you're not. Right. Right? Right. So the key to activation is, number one, the biggest one and the one I see that in our industry a lot of people miss is the first three weeks, it is all about effort. It is not about results. Ideally, if they're a W-2, you can pay them a salary and say, I'll give you 300 bucks a week. If you can, uh, you know, go into 100 businesses, I'll give you a list of 100. If you go to 90 of them, you get zero. 
If you go to 300 of them or more, then you're going to get, you know, or if you go to 100 of them or more, you're going to get 300 bucks. So it's it's all about the effort. The sales calls are about the effort. The culture is about the effort. The expectations are about the effort. The pay is about the effort. Everything is effort, not results. Mm-hmm. Now you might say, well, James, well, how do I know I'm going to get sales out of them? Well, if you don't get sales, guess what you did wrong? You either recruited the wrong person or you didn't train them. Right. Recruit, train, then activate. Okay, so the key is get them going there. Then once you get to the point where results are required, because we want to make money, right? At some point, we got to make some money here. So then when we get to that point, it's minimum expectations that you are actually going to enforce. Right. And it's the enforcement is so important. It is. Yeah, Yeah, I got to do it right. So there's so many people that are like, oh, I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the one that fires them. And you know what's funny? I I, so I've managed. I mean, like personally, I mean, when I was 22 years old, Uh I had 30 salespeople like employees employee salespeople on my team uh-huh. in a local office. So I've been managing salespeople for right. like your whole life. 15 years. Like right. I, and you know what? I had a few difficult conversations early on. Mm-hmm. I haven't had any sense. Mm-hmm. And you know why? Because I'm, I never fire anybody. My procedures fire them. My processes fire right. them. Right. They get a piece of paper and it says, if you do this, this, and this, you are going to be terminated from the team. You're done. And so then when they would come and say, you know, maybe there's an awkward conversation of, oh, you know, I, I feel like I'm really gaining momentum. Is there any way you can make an exception? No. Right. You're like, James, how many times have you made an exception for that person you really felt like they maybe could make it? Never. Right. You're like, oh, James, that's so mean. No. What's mean is stringing somebody along who sucks. Right. Instead of letting them go find a job that they're good at. Because by that time, you know whether you and they both know whether they're going to be good. Right. You know, you've already well, put and, over, a, you put what, a month or month right, and a half into this right. effort. And the way you know is by, again, you set the minimum expectations low enough that mm-hmm. you're actually willing to enforce them. Mm-hmm. What a lot of ISOs do that I talk to is they're like, oh, yeah, we tell our people you got to get three deals a week. Otherwise, that's it. They don't really mean that. If they have a rep that gets two sales in a week, you think they're really going to fire that rep? Right. No. They're going to be happy that rep got two. And they're going to say it's, it's, this, it's all like all this tactic. It's stupid. It doesn't work psychologically. Like if the minimum is really one or two a week, whatever it is, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Give it to them in writing. They miss it three weeks in a row. They're gone. Yeah. And then you don't ever have to have a difficult conversation. You have processes. You have procedures. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's on a level playing field. Now, I'm going to talk next week. I'm going to extend it to one other thing where we're going to talk about then how do we get these kind of minimum expectations? Now, how do we get our top performers to perform really, really well? Yeah. yeah. So we're going to talk about getting it to the next level, but we'll wait and talk about that next week. Okay. Good stuff, James. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.